so once again, my name is Susie. I'm one of the pastors here at our New Philly Hongdae Alpha campus. Um, and for the last week, I guess it's, today's the second installment, we are going through the book of Colossians. Um, so this week and also next week, we'll be finishing out the book of Colossians. But we, before we actually go right into the word, there's one, um, one announcement that I wanted to give that wasn't given here at Alpha last week. Uh, because we wanted to make sure that we gave the opportunity for other campuses to hear first. And that is that uh, one of our church campuses um, that takes place in Itaewon, so New Philly Itaewon, that has been, um, you know, part of the New Philly family for about eight years. Uh, this campus is unfortunately closing down. So today is actually the last Sunday where they're going to be meeting together. Uh, they've been going strong for eight years. They've seen so much incredible fruit when they first um, started meeting. They rented at a bar called King Bar, and it was in the, in the middle of a neighborhood called Hooker Hill. And so it's like a red light district in, um, in the Itaewon kind of area of town. And in faith, we sent out 10 church planters from our community. They started meeting there every Sunday. And week by week, we started seeing people drawn in by the gospel. And it was incredible. We saw people that were actually there, like, it's, it's a bar. I guess I could go for a drink at, you know, 2 p.m. or something. And they walk in into a church service. And they end up staying because um, of what they hear there, the people that they meet there, the relationships that are built there. And so for over eight years... We've seen incredible fruit at this campus. Uh, as of late, there's been several departures, including that of the campus pastors, Pastors Marcus and Anna Corpening. And so they uh, left for the States about a month. No, not a month ago. It's like a week and a half ago. Um, they left for the States, and they're moving on to a new season as they're getting ready for parenthood. Um, and so in light of that, our Itaewon leaders have met um, they discuss about how the sustainability of the campus um, would look like for the rest of the year. And through prayer, through a lot of discussion, through a lot of dialogue, uh, they came to the conclusion that the best thing to do at this moment, at least in this season, is to close down the campus. Um, it's very sad and it's very unfortunate. Um, some of our like strongest leaders in, our, in, in all of New Philly, they've really risen out of the Itaewon uh, community. Um, and so we're very sad to, to see it closing, but at the same time, we are more confident than ever that God is going to be doing everything that he needs to do through the leaders that will be scattered. Some of our leaders will be joining us in our different campuses. Some of the leaders will be uh, checking out different churches. Some of them are um, actually heading back home, so they're flying back home. But all that being said, after so much prayer and so much discerning uh, of God's purposes for the Etoan community, we're very confident that God will continue to get the glory and he'll continue, we'll continue to see the fruit for many years to come from what was planted uh, in Itaewon. Yeah, so that's a, a, an announcement that I wanted to make sure it went out to you guys today as well. Um, now, let's, let's move into the book of Colossians. And, you know, in light of all the different transitions that we are going through as a community together, it's particularly an important book for us to kind of delve into at this hour, uh, lest we think that it is by our works, it is by our great grand exploits for the kingdom that we are fully accepted by God. That's going to be always a temptation for every Christian. 
is to start in a place of grace and slowly make our way over to works. Um, I don't know exactly how that transfer takes place in our minds and throughout the course of our lives, but inevitably it happens. That is how we are wired in our flesh to want to earn our acceptance. And so it is very crucial at this hour for us to kind of sink our teeth into the gospel message uh, as a community. So last week we uh, went through Colossians 1. We talked about the, the hope of the gospel. And it is simply that, number one, Christ is supreme over everything. Second is that we are redeemed despite everything. And lastly, that the gospel message, the word of God is bearing fruit and growing through everything. God's kingdom continues to move relentlessly forward. I wanted to give us a little bit more background on the Colossian church. So this is uh, the book of Colossians is an epistle. It's a letter written by the apostle Paul to a church in Colossae. And as we said last week, the church of Colossae wasn't like the superstar mega church of its time. It was actually a pretty average church in a pretty average city. And all that being said, the most influential Christian figure in like alive at that time is taking the time to write a letter to this community to strengthen them in the gospel. The background, what, what the Colossian church was going through is that the seed of the gospel had been sown at that land and we're, they were starting to see the fruit of it. Uh, there was a church plant that started in the church of Colossae, but they were facing the attack, not of people from outside, not from other religions, not from, um, from persecution from the world. They were actually facing um, the attack of heresies that were beginning to spring up from within. So the gospel message was uh, in danger of being tainted by in very, very subtle ways. Some of the heresies, they um, brought to question the divinity of Jesus Christ. So it said that Jesus Christ is a man, but he's under the submission of higher powers, higher authorities, uh, like mystical powers in the heavens, like angels, demons. Jesus Christ is submitted under those things. Um, and there was also a heresy that said that there was some kind of special knowledge, like a Christianity 2.0, let's say. Like, you get into the kingdom through the gospel, but now if you want to make it to, like... Christianity plus plus, like there's some secret knowledge. There's, there's a secret, like a mystery that you need to grasp in order to be enlightened and become this kind of super Christian. So this is the kind of context that we um, are, are entering into. It is a church that is fighting hard to stay true to the gospel message in the midst of different heresies that are popping up. And as a, you know, as a, uh, I guess, re review. Um, when we talk about the gospel in its purest form, it is simply this. We are gods by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. That is it, period. No amount of works, no amount of brownie points in the kingdom of heaven can get us to where we need to be to be fully accepted by God. It is simply by grace alone that we are accepted. It is through faith alone, not through works, not through checking all your boxes. And it is in Christ alone. He is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no back door into heaven. There is no 
um, express lane into heaven. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and he alone can lead us to the Father. So that is the gospel. Now we're picking up, um, we're going to backtrack a little bit from what um, Kelly read us through today. We're going to backtrack a little bit to where we left off last week, and that is Colossians uh, chapter 1, verses 20, uh, starting with verse 24. So let me read this. This is in the NIV. It's a little bit, a tiny bit easier to understand than the ESV, especially when Paul goes on like a run-on sentence for like 10 verses. Um, So I'm going to be reading from the NIV. It says, now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. For the sake of his body, which is the church, I have become a servant by the commission of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. So Paul is attacking the heresy of this secret mystery, the secret knowledge, this enlightened Christian um, kind of heresy. And he's addressing it head on. He's saying, you want to hear what the true ultimate mystery is? And this is what it is. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. This is a mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. And to this end, I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. This is the one thing he's going to preach. He's not going to preach about all these, you know, technicalities. He's not going to preach about all these different things that could kind of outshine the person of Christ. He's simply saying, we proclaim him. We proclaim Christ, Jesus Christ. This is what I labor for. This is the power which I'd have, uh, working through me. It is not by my energy, but by his that I'm able to labor in the kingdom. And so we move on to Colossians chapter two. He continues on to say, I want you to know how much I'm struggling for you. And for those at Laodicea, this is another church plant. And for all who have not met me personally, my purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of the complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Again, he is saying the greatest mystery, the climax of all understanding to mankind is wrapped up in the person of Christ. There is no higher power. There's no more ultimate knowledge than the person of Jesus Christ. And when he says the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, this, this word, um, is kind of like a, you get the picture of a coffer, like a, a, a pirate's chest kind of thing. So if you can imagine all the wisdom and all the knowledge of all of history and all of humankind is wrapped up, is wrapped up, is held in this coffer, in this body of Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate expression of all wisdom and all knowledge. So he's basically saying, stop entertaining all these different thoughts. These things that you think are beyond the knowledge, beyond the understanding of Jesus Christ. There is no mysterious secret knowledge that can surpass a person of Jesus. And he continues on to say, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit 
and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. All he's saying there is, I'm not with you guys. I I don't attend your service. I don't go to your local church. But I keep hearing about how orderly and how firm your faith in Christ is. The words orderly and firm are actually military terms. It's not like a, a character trait. It's actually military terms. And the pitch that you get when you're thinking about orderly and firm as military terms is that it denotes A military line, like a line of soldiers, unbroken, intact, unbreached. So this is what he's essentially saying. This is what it looks like when the army of God holds the line against all the works of the enemy and the temptations of the world. You stand firm in the truth of the person of Christ. It's not talking about a particular style of preaching or praying. It's not talking about a certain DNA that you carry as a local house. It is not talking about a church growth strategy when we're talking about the army of God. It is simply talking about a company of people who have committed to stand firm in the person of Jesus Christ. No matter what kind of season you go through, no matter what kind of circumstances you're facing as a church, no matter what kind of trials you have in your personal life and in your family, this is what the army of God looks like. People who dig their heels into the soil of the gospel and remain standing there no matter what. So this is the picture of an army. And after he paints this picture of an army of God that stands firm in the person of Jesus Christ against every attack of the enemy and against every heresy of the world, he switches over from the image of an army now to the image of a tree. He continues on to say, so then just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. He gives us a picture of a Christian that is firmly rooted in the soil of the gospel. Now, as I was looking through this passage, I kind of went on a nerd tangent, like a black hole, and I was just looking at the anatomy of a tree, and I was kind of like just nerding out online and looking through what the anatomy of a tree looks like. And so these are just different uh, pictures that kind of give uh, give you insight as to what actually holds a tree firm on the ground. And there's a network a network of roots that dig deep into the soil that ground them there and that absorb up the nutrients that it needs in order to not just live, not just stay alive, but actually thrive and begin to throw, uh, uh, throw, uh, begin to thrive. Throw, um, um, and as I was reading online, it said that uh, there's different kind of trees, of course, but in the case of a tree such as like an oak tree, um, it has a very particular type of root system. If you guys could entertain this nerd moment just for a second. Um, There's two different kinds of root systems. One is fibrous. So it means that the roots kind of spread evenly throughout the soil. And then there's a type of system called the taproot system. And this is kind of the, the, the system that an oak tree, for example, has. And it is that there's this main root, this main root that kind of like thrusts itself deeper and deeper into the ground, finding new sources of nutrients and of soil. And from this main taproot, all the different Uh, other kind of 
peripheral um, roots kind of branch out from this main tap root. And a mature oak's roots can actually absorb more than 50 gallons of water a day. So this is not like a little like a decorative kind of thing. You know, this is the source of all life is drawn in from these kind of roots. And isn't this like such a beautiful picture of what a Christian is? Like somebody who doesn't just stay on the surface, doesn't just want to stay grounded and not shaken, but there's a main tap line. There's a main tap root going deep into the soil of the gospel. And from there, every other root branches out. That's your plumb line that grounds you in the truth of the gospel and who Christ is. If we look closer at the anatomy of the roots, isn't this cool? So that, that, that the main little, little dude that goes all the way down, that's the tap root. So that is what like anchors it firmly. It's almost like a stake planted on the ground and it is ever growing. And the deeper this goes, the higher the branches can go, the wider the branches can go. So all of this is happening under the surface. Up on the surface, you can have whatever. But if you see a big tree that has weathered the storms, you know for sure that there is a deep root system that has kept it there, not just anchored, but also growing and thriving and bearing fruit. Sometimes this can serve as an encouragement to all of us. Sometimes we don't see a lot in the surface, even in our lives. We don't see a ton of fruit. You know, we're like, what is taking so long? Why in the world is it taking me so long to understand this or get connected to this or learn about this? But all the while your roots are going down deeper. You're going deeper into the gospel, deeper into the person of who God is. And sooner or later, you're going to begin to bear fruit. It's almost like inevitable. If your roots go down deep, you're going to begin to bear fruit. You're going to begin to branch out all kinds of branches up on the top. Sometimes you can't see all the underground work that is taking place. So I love this imagery that Paul gives us. This is what, can you imagine? Like, you know, in Isaiah 61, it talks about the oaks of righteousness planted for the display of his splendor. This is what it looks like. Can you imagine a row of these oak trees with their tap roots, like planted, anchored in the ground of the gospel, unmoved, unshaken, able to weather every storm of life because their root system, their supply, their provision, their resources are in the person of Jesus Christ. That is, that is good news. That is good news to us. It means as long as we stay grounded, we'll make it. In our lives, in our personal challenges, we'll make it. So back to the passage. We're talking about, you know, being rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. And then he goes on to say, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. So another, another author put it this way. Christ alone is a yardstick by which you measure philosophy, all the phases of human knowledge, all human understanding. Christ is the measure for all understanding since he is a creator and sustainer of the universe. We talked about this last week when we were going through Colossians 1. He's the beginning. He's the end. He's supreme over all powers, all authorities here on earth. There is no knowledge that goes beyond the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And this is the power of Christ over all creation. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. He is not just re-preaching the gospel at this point. He's also directly taking a stab at one of the heresies that the Colossian church uh, was struggling with. And that is, is Christ fully God? 
He didn't look like fully God, but is he fully God? He looked like a man, just like you and me. But here, Apostle Paul, he establishes Christ is fully man and fully God. And by extension of this, if you have someone who is the head and he is above every power and principality, what happens to the body that is attached to that head? You can't have a body here, powers and principalities here, and then the rest of the body down here, right? By virtue of the fact that Christ himself is supreme, he's superior to every power, every authority here on earth, the body that connects to the head is also up there. And so he says, you've been given the fullness of Christ, who is the head over every power and every authority. This is the glory of the church. As long as we're connected to the head, who is Christ, we have authority, power, dominion over everything else here on earth. He goes on to say, in him, you are also circumcised in the putting off of, of the sinful nature. If you guys don't know what circumcision is, ask your neighbor. Uh, <laughs> we're not going to go into that today. Um, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men. I, I, I don't want to go there. Um, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. In other words, this is the power of Christ over all your sin. You're not, he's not just powerful over everything else here in creation. He's also the power, the king, the Lord over the sin in your life as well. And he, he points something out. He says that with the hands of man, you can circumcise flesh, but it takes the hands of God to circumcise the heart. He's getting to something a little bit uncomfortable for a lot of Christians today. And that is no matter how much you circumcise the flesh, no matter how much behavior modification you do, no matter how many QTs you do a week, no matter how long you pray for, no matter how many boxes you check off in your Christian to-do list, none of it will be able to circumcise the heart. The problem is so much deeper than your actions and your behavior. And whether you look like a Christian or you act or you speak like a Christian, you could do all those things and yet have an uncircumcised heart. That is a little bit scary in the sense that you can live an entire life, uh, lifetime looking like a Christian, saying the right things as a Christian, showing up to church every week, showing up to all the like extracurricular Christian activities, like extra prayer meetings or whatnot. Like you can do all those things and yet your heart could remain uncircumcised unless you allow the hand of God to do its work in your heart. He's saying that your problem is much deeper than you think. It's not about what you see in the exterior. It's about the heart from which all of it flows. If a heart is uncircumcised, what is the point in everything in the exterior looking Christian if the inside hasn't been redeemed, renewed, washed clean in the blood of Jesus? So he's saying that the problem is very severe, very extreme for all of us, no matter what we think. And nothing short of God's circumcision of the heart can deal with a sin within. This is the gospel, plain and simple. When you were dead in your sins, 
And in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. You were dead. You weren't struggling. You weren't wrestling. You weren't just having a hard time. You were dead, like flat line, like no, like boop, boop. Once in a while, it's like flat, beep, like all the way through. You weren't just, if you, uh, I've, I've said this analogy before, but if you were to imagine your entire life without Jesus, um, and picture yourself as somebody who is in very deep waters and you're just like barely keeping your head above water and you're paddling like crazy. And here and there you feel like you're swallowing water and you're like grasping at anything that could save you in that moment. And then you imagine Jesus Christ kind of like, just like serenely kind of paddling through and then picking you up off the water and throwing you on the lifeboat. That is a nice picture, but that's actually very inaccurate. Like you weren't, you weren't struggling. You weren't paddling. You weren't swallowing water. You were dead. You're like a dead body floating on that water, like decaying, bloated from like 20 years of living away from Christ. You know what I mean? That's what you were. You didn't even have the strength to call out for help. And that's when Jesus Christ came in and he breathed fresh life into you and made something that was dead, that had no hope. He made it alive in Christ. Christ's last breath on the cross was your first breath as someone who's been alive, made alive in Christ, a resurrected person. That is, that is how God has it, you know? If it was kind of our works and kind of our merit and kind of our earning, and then, like, Jesus came in, you know, and saved us just in the nick of time, that'd be a very different kind of gospel. But we're talking about people who are completely hopeless, dead in our transgressions, that out of simply God's mercy, were raised to life by Christ. God has made you alive in Christ. God has made you alive in Christ. Nothing that you could have done in that moment, nothing that you could have done for yourself could have done the work that Christ only can do in your life. We move on to verses 13 through 15. It says, he forgave us of all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The, the, uh, the message version says it this way. When you were stuck in your old sin dead life, you were incapable of responding to God. God brought you alive right along with Christ. Think of it all sins forgiven, the slate wiped clean, that old arrest warrant canceled and nailed to Christ's cross. He stripped all the spiritual tyrants in the universe of their sham authority at the cross and marched them naked through the streets. Isn't that a beautiful picture? This is what God is saying to all of us who are lost and hopeless without Christ. He's saying, you see this? Do you see this? This is what it looks like when you get what you deserve. This is the wages of all your sin. Even all the righteous acts that you feel like you've done. This is where the rule following behavior modification let me just check off the boxes. This is where it leads you without the grace of God. This is what your sins and your human efforts deserve. 
The wages of sin is death. So God is making a public proclamation through the gospel. He is raising it up and displaying it for the whole world to see. This is what we deserved. This is where our life without Jesus leads us. Now, if we were to skip down to verse 20, he continues on saying, since you died with Christ, the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they're based on human commands and teachings. He's saying, you heard the gospel. You're saved by the gospel. Why do you keep coming back to your works? Why do you keep coming back to trying to earn your salvation? And he says, such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom where their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. The message says it this way. Such things, all these do's and don'ts, all these checklists that you have as a Christian, such things sound impressive if said in a deep enough voice. They even give the illusion of being pious and humble and ascetic, but they're just another way of showing off, making yourselves look important. In other words, these checklists that you have, these do's and don'ts that you have as a Christian, that you're trying as hard as you might, you know, to check all these things off in order to earn your acceptance. Not only does it not save you, it leaves you exactly where you were. Not only does it not save you, but it fools you into thinking that you are climbing up this imaginary ladder towards Christ's acceptance. It fools you. You're actually worse off than you were before because you have this illusion in your mind that somehow you're getting closer to Christ. You're getting closer to God by doing all these things and trying to earn your own salvation. So this is how we often think. This is how the human mind is kind of wired. This is how the world has wired us. There's a spectrum, right? There's a spectrum. And on one side, we have rule abiding, how well you abide the rules. By, by the rules. And then you have rule rejecting. This is like the crowd that says like, like all these rules, I'm, you know, like these things are super legalistic. So I'm going to do the opposite, which is like doing what I want and living life how I want and doing things my own way. And this is far more righteous. They're both forms of righteousness, by the way. Right. Both of them are. Anyway, we'll get to that. Um, and somehow we feel like, okay, so for us to land on the gospel, we can't be too far swung on the side of like, okay, I'm going to check off every box and be super legalistic. But we can't like go all the way over to like, then I get to do what I want. Then like, I don't need to do anything. I can just live my life having accepted Christ and that's all there is. And I'm just counting, you know, the days before I go to heaven and that's it. And so in our mind, we think, okay, okay, okay. So we can't go on one extreme. We can't go on the other. So we're going to find like a sweet spot somewhere in the middle. And this is probably where the gospel lands. Like, not too far on that side, not too far on this side. This is a balanced Christian life. And this is how we think. But this is what Paul is saying. And this should be infuriating to a lot of people who like, like most people, we like this. This is manageable. This is handleable. Like, you know where you land on the spectrum. But this is what Paul is saying. Like, that is absurd. Number one, 
on one side, you can either be rule abiding or rule rejecting, but you're still anchored in the rules. You're still talking about behavior. You cannot submit to this entire standard of calculating and measuring. If you're talking about the gospel, the gospel is completely other. It's not part of the spectrum. These are two very distinct ways of measuring. You either measure yourself by what you are doing or not doing or by what someone else has done for you. And that is the gospel. What Christ has done on our behalf, period. What Christ has done on our behalf, period. You can have your rules or you can have the gospel. You can't have it both ways. There is no intersection between these two. Now, let me ask you a question. What is legalism? I think we throw this term around a lot. I don't know what kind of background you guys were, were, were raised in, but in my mind, I always pictured, like, I, I thought that I could identify what a legalist looks like. It looks like someone who's probably wearing a suit, who doesn't clap during worship songs, who, like, looks a little bit rigid, who doesn't sing modern songs. And so I have, like, this in, in my mind, if, like, if they're a... Uh, uh, if they're living by the gospel and they're spirit filled, then I feel like they'll probably raise their hands. They'll probably be singing like, 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 like these certain kind of songs. They'll probably have a drum set on stage. Like, you know, like, you know, like you have a mental picture of what a legalist looks like, but all it is, is simply someone who detracts from the sufficiency of what Christ has done on your behalf. Simply taking away, taking credit from what Christ alone has done on your behalf for your full acceptance. You can have a complete legalist in any kind of context, in any kind of church. doesn't matter what kind, what, how like your worship sounds. doesn't matter what, what age bracket you fall into. doesn't matter. You can have a legalist just as much in a very traditional high church kind of context or in a very like, yo, like we're super hip, we're super trendy. We like meet in a warehouse and like we wear jeans on stage. And you know what I mean? Like you can have a legalist anywhere. In any kind of context, in any kind of church, any kind of age, any generation, a legalist is simply someone who doesn't give full glory, full credit for your acceptance to Christ. And so this is, I think, something that we need to take to heart even as Nephili. Now, I'm going to get a little bit more real. Even at Nephili, we have a certain picture of what a good Christian looks like. Like, they attend certain meetings. They are pretty regular in worship. Um, they do this financially. They, you know, I don't know. Like, we have this checklist in our minds of what a good Christian looks like. And this, although it was birthed out of a heart, you know, to set standards out of a heart, to bring order and safety. Like over time, we've seen that becoming our own little checklist for righteousness. So someone who breaks any of these things, ah, I don't know if they really love Christ. Like maybe they're really struggling in their faith or like maybe they're kind of backslidden and we just need to keep an eye on them. And you know what I mean? Like in a very, very subtle way, these things that were there to bring life and bring order and bring safety, in a very subtle way over the years, it's become our own little rule checklist 
our own little handmade, man-made circumcision of sorts. Let's, let's modify our behavior. Let's make sure that they're checking off all these lists and that they're not doing all of these things. And that makes a good Christian. That, that is what someone who loves Jesus, somebody who's redeemed by the gospel, looks like. And so this is something so crucial for us to understand as we're moving forward as a church as well. No amount of work. No title that you can have. And you feel like we've used so many different terms, right? Like, if you're, you know, a newcomer, you're like, at this level of Christianity. And then if you make it through to membership, okay. Christianity, you know, like 1.0. And then you make it through leadership. You're like, okay, they're the real Christians. They're the real, you know, like really engaged people who are actually, you know, going for the kingdom. And then as you go up this ladder, you feel like this is a measure or this is an indication of how Christian you are and how accepted you are by God, how respected you are by people around you. And in a very subtle way, it can become our own little legalistic in-house system. Don't assume that someone who has the title of pastor is more accepted by Christ in any way than you are. We are all on the same playing field. We're all on the same level. I'm just as much a sinner as anybody else is in this room. I'm just as desperately in need of God's grace every single day. I'll need it tomorrow. I'll need it the day after. I'm just as much in need of God's grace as anybody else here in this room. And if we're not careful to make sure that that is where we start from, then what we have in our church, it can become very misleading in many ways. If I can be a little bit real, it's like sometimes when people approach me, like when they hear like, oh, oh, you're a, you're a pastor. Oh, like all of a sudden it's like, oh, you're like a real Christian. You know, like you get that kind of feel and I'm like, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that. I am, I am your, your sister in Christ as well. Like I am blood bought, blood purchased, just like anybody else here. I'm just as in need of Christ as you are. That's where all of us are. So let me put it all in a nutshell. Last week, we talked about what the hope of the gospel is. And now today, we're going to talk about what the freedom found in the gospel is. The freedom of the gospel, number one, is that it is God-initiated. What a relief. You know, when we were still dead, but we, still, we couldn't even repent at that point. We're still dead in our transgressions. Christ died for us. It was God-initiated. It was his idea. We didn't earn it or merit it in any kind of way. So that is the freedom that we find in the gospel. God himself initiated these things. Two, it is God sustained. The grace, the favor dispensed to us on the cross, it isn't just applicable for us the moment we get saved. Like, okay, that's when the blood of Christ was applied on my life and this one accepted the gospel. And ever since then, like I haven't really needed it. No, like you need the blood of Christ over the entire course of your life. If you were to think about your life, like in a timeline, like it's not just that, like on this day, I got saved. This is the day that, that I see Jesus' blood, like, you know, on me. It is like as if the blood of Christ was smeared all the way through your entire timeline. It is God sustained the grace, the favor, the mercy that applies to us each and every day in every, in every circumstance. It is never earned. It is never merited. 
And there will never be a point where we cross over into like, okay, I don't need that anymore. That's for beginner Christians. Like now I'm on the other side. Now I'm a mature Christian. I don't need the blood of Christ to redeem me anymore. We will never cross over into that side. It was, it's going to be a lifelong experience of us understanding, unpacking, and experiencing the gospel power alive in our lives. Third, it is God exemplified. And this is why I mean by that. If there was ever a human being here on earth that didn't have to prove, you know, that he needed acceptance or he needed to earn acceptance, it was Jesus Christ. This is the guy who lived life perfectly. This is the guy who checked off every box. You give him a box, he's, he's checked it, you know? And if there was anybody who probably felt the most pressure to prove anything, it was Jesus Christ as well. He needed to prove that he's God, right? Like, that's like as high a task, you know, as, as tall a task as there is. And yet he did all these things. He lived this life. He healed. He preached. He prayed. He had fellowship. All these things from a place of full acceptance of the Father, living a life, like living his life as if he had nothing to prove. And this is how Christ has exemplified the gospel for us. He lived a perfect life. He died an unjust death. And all of it from the place of full acceptance from the Father. If there were any ordination words that he got before he launched into ministry, if there ever was a moment that looked like an ordination for him, it was the moment when he came out of the baptism waters and then he heard the voice of God the Father saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Before he ever did anything, before he ever had to prove anything, it started from a place of full acceptance. This is my son in whom I am already well-pleased. And then lastly, this is the freedom of the gospel. It is God-glorifying. It is God-glorifying. How can we boast when we've done nothing, when it's all a gift, when what you deserve wasn't given to you, and instead you took somebody else's reward? Somebody else took your punishment and instead gave you their reward. How can you boast How can you measure and compare yourself to anybody else when all of us had to be bought by the blood of Christ? It is God glorifying. This is how we give glory to God. None of the things that we have done ever in life, none of the things that we will ever do in life are able to earn us what Christ alone was able to do. That is the glory of the gospel. That is the freedom that we find in the gospel We are no longer obliged to prove ourselves to anybody. We're no longer obliged to earn our way into God's acceptance. We have simply by grace, simply through faith, and simply in Christ, been fully accepted by God the Father. So next week, We're going to tackle Colossians 3, and we're going to be talking about the fruit of the gospel. If this is the ground that we sink our roots into, 
Next week, we're going to be talking about the fruit that someone like that would bear through the gospel. And this is my prayer. You know, as a community, this is my prayer that as we allow the good news, the freedom that we have in the gospel, as we allow that to sink into our hearts, we would experience a newfound freedom in the gospel, that we'd feel the heavy yoke of slavery lift off of our shoulders, that we would stop trying to earn our acceptance or prove our worthiness, that all these things will be broken off by the work that God has already done on our behalf. And that as we allow ourselves to go to this place of almost like rediscovering the gospel in our lives and in our community, this is what it's going to set us up for. And this is the miracle that I'm praying would it be happening in our lives and in our hearts. And that is true, uncoerced, uninhibited, joyful, grateful love for God. It's impossible to do it otherwise. It's impossible to have true, uncoerced, uninhibited, thankful, joyful love for God unless we know that we have nothing to prove and that Christ has proven it all on our behalf. So let's take a moment to pray. Father, we are so grateful that in the midst of our failures, in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our pride, our self-reliance, in the midst of all those things, you chose to not give us what we deserved. Instead, you chose to slay your very own son on the cross. Instead, you chose to spill his very own blood that we who were dead would come alive. May the worship that we give to you with every remaining day of our lives be that of a sinner who's been made righteous through you. May be the songs, the worship, the life, the sacrifice of someone who was dead but is now alive in Christ. May everything that we give to you flow from the source of life in Christ Jesus who is the hope of glory alive in us. May our lives be fruitful for the sake of your glory and for your kingdom. Not because we got it all down, not because we are experienced or we are mature, not because of our own personal dispositions or how busy we are doing ministry or advancing your kingdom. May it be simply because we are lost and now we're found. We're blind and now we see. We 
were dead and now we are alive. May that be what you hear coming from this community. A company of people who choose to stand side by side, dig our heels into the soil of the gospel, sink deep our roots in the person of Jesus Christ and stand firm in that place. We'll be able to withstand every storm, every shaking, simply because we're grounded and rooted in the work that you have finished on the cross. You have said that it is finished. May we believe it as a community. May we believe it as individuals that are still growing more and more in likeness of Christ. May we believe it as a body that is submitted to its head. And in all these things, Jesus, would you alone get the glory? We love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.